0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, I want to welcome you to a brand new episode of SCAR. Now, SCAR stands for Seeking Courage and Redemption with Dustin Rivenbark. Now, we've got a great episode lined up uh, for you today. We have an amazing guest on the line today. But before we get into all of that, I want to give you the intent of the podcast, kind of the, the why are we here, so to speak. And we're here To work out our hardships, our tribulations, our issues in such a way that we can begin to unfold God's plan and purpose for our lives. Now you may be listening and you may be thinking, but Dustin, why do I need to listen to Scar? And the truth is, guys, we all have stuff. We all have hardships, issues, trials to overcome, and if we allow them, they can even start to accumulate and even change the trajectory of our lives. Now that's why you need to be listening to SCAR because here at SCAR we have a safe place where we can all come together and share our wisdom, our hardships, our trials in such a way that we can help each other. Uh, figure out God's plan and purpose for our lives. So with all of that being said, I want to introduce to you a brand new friend of mine, Mr. Roman Prokopchuk. Please say hello, Roman. Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. All right. I'm glad to have you. Now, did I get that name right? I got it. Close I got it. Close enough. All right. That is an interesting last name, Roman, and I'm excited for um our listeners to be able to hear a little bit about you and your story. Tell us um the origin behind that last name and kind of where you're from. Yeah, so it's Eastern European.
1: I'm from Ukraine. Um, I did a ancestry test or whatever ancestry ancestry.com It came back like
0: from Eastern Europe, so I'm fairly certain I'm from that region overall. So I was born in 1984 in Yviv, Ukraine. It's a
1: um, 750-year-old-plus city. It's on the UNESCO World Heritage Site. It was uh, one of the cities kind of founded by uh, Vikings back in the day when they started kind of expanding, um, which is interesting in terms of history. But um, I basically came over to the United States in 1990. With six other family members, Uh, Ukraine gained its independence from the Soviet Union in 1992. Obviously, with communism, there was a lot of religious persecution. Um, I went to church with my family a Pentecostal Church, and I think one reason we actually left was obviously uh, freedom in terms of opportunity, but as well as uh, religious uh, freedom as well, and not getting obviously thrown in jail or sent to labor camps or getting rights taken away in that sense. So came over here. Uh, I turned five the year we came. We came in March of 1990. Uh, my birthday is in August. I went to kindergarten, which was good because I got assimilated really quickly, learned the language, was able to kind of, you know, adjust and adapt, and uh, went to school here. Uh, went to Rutgers University, interned with the Secret Service, held the top secret federal clearance, graduated when the uh, economy basically tanked in 08. Uh, so couldn't find a job, got an opportunity to pivot into digital marketing, took that opportunity, have been doing it for 13 years, founded an agency, worked with a lot of Fortune 500 clients, clients across the board, and basically self-taught and made a mission to, to learn something and, and take it upon myself. Uh, other than that, in my personal life, my wife and I uh, got married, when we got married, we we're looking into starting a family, and um, in the last three and a half years, we've experienced five miscarriages. We've spent about $100,000 out of pocket on infertility treatments, two of which happen on back-to-back Christmases, which is, you know, a tie-in for Christmas now for all time that, you know, you kind of think back to it. And that journey led us to thinking about becoming foster parents. Yeah. So we thought that would be another way to start our family. We're technically designated foster to adopt, which means if we have a child in our home uh, and the parental rights are terminated of that child, the, the Division of Child Services would come to my wife and I first to see if you know it's a good fit if we're able to adopt. So since uh, June of 2018, we were licensed May 31st, 2018. Next day, we got our first placement, two boys that we had for a year that we thought we were going to be able to adopt, but they ended up getting reunified after a year because the, the, the facts in the case can change overnight. You know, the mom did everything that she needed to do, so we're proud of her, and the kids are taken care of and well cared for now. We've, you know, touched base a few times and actually got to see them a few times and really offer to be a resource for any kids that go back if the biological parents need help or financial or food or come over for a Sunday dinner or, or you know, have our doors open. But since June of
0: 2018, we've had 25 children in our home. currently... Currently five children under the age
1: of three and a half. So two three and a half year olds, a fifteen month
0: old, a twelve month old, and a five month old. Wow. So let me just pause a second, Roman. Uh for my listeners, he said all of this, he unloaded so much here in a short amount of time that I don't know if you caught all of this. Let's let me let me just kind of hit some highlights here. So you were an immigrant from Ukraine, came over due to religious persecution. You came over to the States, grew up here, even became, uh, through coming to the U.S. with a family of six members living in a two-bedroom, you managed to intern with Secret Service. You became a self-taught digital marketer, okay, who in turn worked with Fortune 500 companies. Um, law had five miscarriages, sparking a passion for um, fostering, and you now foster 25 kids. Is this correct? Yeah,
1: and also, I guess in college, I was thinking about going to the Marine Corps, because um, if you have a college degree, if you have a bachelor's degree, you can go in as an officer. You can get an officer commission, so I was training for that. Junior year to go down to Quantico, do that, and get a, a commission as a second lieutenant, which I believe you get a command of forty uh, soldiers or marines under you. But I didn't know I had a ulcer caused by a bacteria called H. pylori which was eating away for years, and I never got it treated. So basically, I could not do the pre-ship PFT, which is the physical fitness test. I was spitting out blood and stuff like that. So I think I look back
0: at it, it's a blessing in disguise. I think if I would have went and didn't get treated for it after the fact, um, I probably would have died in the training. So that was another kind of direction that my life could have took. You know, and when I look at this, um, this has – Perseverance. This has resilience. This has so many things written inside this story. Let's start back, kind of at the beginning. So, living as a child in the Soviet Union. Tell me, tell me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. So um, it's it's very, um, I guess, repressive in, in a sense. I think a lot of people in the news now. There's a side that favors socialism and communism, which I think on paper they novel ideas, but in practice, they've failed everywhere in the world. Um, so there was always, you know, people working and, and, and trying to make ends meet and barely surviving. And then there's people basically, you know, gaining the system in power. So, you know, although I, I only spent four and a half years there, I saw, you know, things like waiting in bread lines with my mom, uh, hot water being shut off at night, sometimes electricity. And some other things like KGB would be following you around if they knew you went to church or uh, was a believer or if like the sermons actually spoke about and they found out something that goes against what the state was saying. You know, those people may disappear or get false charges and get sent to Siberia for, you know, labor camps, you know, five, 10 years, which hard labor, you, you really don't make it out of. Um, In situations like that, I think it was the norm for me. So obviously my parents, my grandparents, my family made it as, I guess, tolerable as possible and I guess shielded me from certain things. And at that age, maybe I was also naive to a certain extent because I was so young. But those are some of the things that I, I did see. I mean, people are resilient and still resilient, have a lot of grit. So I think a lot of people that immigrate from areas like that, especially Eastern Europe, Succeed a lot in the U.S. regardless of what they're trying to undertake because they have that extra kind of chip on their shoulder and that extra grit,
0: knowing where they came from. Yeah, and and being a first immigration um, or first generation immigrant, um, I you know you can actually um, you actually get stories firsthand too for the experiences you don't remember. So it's not like this is something that was stories passed down generation to generation like this was you this was your mom this was your family that that came over and and so this this memory can can be um, y- you know a lot of times when we get told about our history it's a lot different than actually living out our history in the same generation. And so, uh, big ups to, to, you know, being courageous enough to just take that journey. And even though you were a kid and you were brought just your family's will to just to break away from that and find religious freedom and all of that is, is just, it's so huge. Now there's actually a story that's kind of, um, uh, about you almost passing away as, as a baby. We talked about your illnesses. We talked about your sicknesses earlier in the military. T- tell me about this time when, when you were a baby.
1: Yeah, there was a, I know there was a time when I was, I mean, in my first year, I, I got sick, as I hear it told, and I stopped breathing for a time. I turned, I guess, blue or, you know, very pale, and, you know, they were rushing me in the ambulance and I know my my mom and my grandparents were telling me you know people were praying for me and praying for me in that moment and you know I'd like to think of it as you know a miracle or as a result of that prayer I kind of came to and made a full recovery so you know I theoretically could have past
0: in my first year of life as well you know and and one of the reasons I really wanted to brought that up that that I bring that up that resonated with me just about the brevity of life just about um you you know my wife and I losing losing our daughter Callie Grace to, to Potter syndrome it was uh one of the hardest things I've ever experienced in my life because you have these plans and these dreams and these purposes for our children and 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 in in a vapor in in an instant um you know those things cannot turn out the way we had hoped so um just kind of wanted to kind of wanted to touch on that a little bit as we go into your childhood we soon discover that that you've got an an absent father uh or an abusive father that that was never around um tell me a little bit tell me a little bit about that growing up how does that how did that feel what What did you find out uh, in that journey? Yeah, I
1: mean, so I found out over time that he's pretty much a narcissist, so he looks for, um, he only does things if he gets a benefit out of them or does things for a show. Like if we were in public, he would kind of, I guess, front that he was a good dad or go to events and stuff like that and go to church, um, just to go to church to kind of keep up appearances, if you will, um, and not necessarily live what? you know, he was really portraying, he was abusive, you know, he he was physically abusive to my mom, my grandparents on my uh, mom's side, my aunt, so I witnessed him, like, throw my mom down the stairs with, pregnant with my brother, then the doctor said, you know, there'd be a chance of my brother being stillborn, which luckily, you know, thank God that didn't happen, he actually ended up graduating from columbia university with a master's degree praise
0: god so it's
1: you know a complete different you know path but it was one of those things where i also told myself that if i grew up i would change i would take a different path because people talked about like quote-unquote generational curses or breaking like you know a, a, a habit where you know their parents may be let's say were alcoholics, or were in drugs, and then their 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 grandparents, and so on and so forth. So, like, even at five, six, seven years old, I made a conscious decision and told myself, when I grow up, I have biological kids or kids in my life, I would be present and treat them and, and portray a lot a, a different view in terms of being a dad and fatherhood and that's obviously how it led and how i treat you know the, the children in my home currently but yeah he was he was a present like he was there but not there so like he would, he would keep up appearances he would never like really be there or a parent or be a father or a role model my my grandfather really stepped in and filled that void for me in terms of seeing how um, you know a man's supposed to act in terms of like his wife his kids those around him and just be kind of like a, a pillar of my family so that was my main male uh, role model uh, my dad also there was a lot of infidelity and stuff like that so uh, my mom actually got a divorce in 2008, finally, because I think the only reason she stayed together with him when we were younger is because, you know, for the benefit of us, because I think she brought that up in terms of him being abusive and she can't be in that situation anymore and, you know, him being not faithful. And he basically said, all right, well, I'm either going to get custody or I'm splitting the kids up. And she didn't really want that life for us. So she kind of, I guess, lived through that for an extended period of time more so than she you know had to because he didn't change over those years i think it even got worse and um yeah she in 2008 she finally i guess got a divorce i think one reason from the year of uh, 18 years old to really now other than the pandemic i really worked out really heavily in terms of weight training i think i subconsciously did that to like protect those around me And indeed i think as, as, I guess, physically dominating and and prowess as possible, just for the simple fact that, you know, I was, you know, a child and was not able to do anything in the situations where, you know, my mom was getting and other family members physically abused. And in 2008, you know, when my mom finally kind of had enough and got a restraining order before she threw all my dad out of her house, like, he kind of got in her face and I got kind of back in his face and said you know you, you you were doing this when I was younger and like try to do that now
0: because that's really not going to happen and I'm yeah. not going to allow it to happen so yeah my dad was never there I mean he's never really come to terms or
1: even apologized I mean I like I think it's important to not hold grudges and forgive you know people that may be quote unquote your enemies or do you wrong and not harp that or carry that and I forgave him like I forget like I forgave him like in terms of praying about it and you know to God and stuff like that. But I choose not to have him in my life because he's consistently let me down, even from 2008 to now. So he'll text me once in a while, and that's about it. I've never gotten an apology. I've never gotten any kind of effort. So it's one of those things where, you know, I've come to terms with it, but I won't allow him to be in my life and influence my family now the same way he was influencing me because there's been no change or coming to terms in terms of like how he affected those around him.
0: You know, and that's and that's and that's hard, man. That's that's not a um, uh, ideal situation for a child to grow up in. And the cold hard fact is, there's so many around the world that are growing up in that very situation. And that's why your story of of perseverance, of motivation, of of intentional living is is what I want to call it. Is uh, is so important because there are a lot of people out there that are facing. So many of these same challenges and no real way to turn, no real direction, and maybe they are trapped in a situation where their mother doesn't want to leave. Uh, One of the most beautiful things in the world is a mother's love, and sometimes uh, that love and that mama bear protection can cause a mom to stay in a situation just like you said. Maybe it wasn't a healthy situation at all, but she felt like Um, she didn't want to bust the family up like it was better uh, together and and so anyway kind of moving past that how was the financial situation growing up like what did your parents do when they moved over here from the Ukraine uh, and growing up through high school and all of those things yeah so I mean we came over here my grandfather was already retired at 55 so he actually did construction another 20 years in terms of roofing
1: which, if you think about it, is a really hard, tedious job, yeah. especially in New Jersey where I'm at. Because in the summers, he can get over 100 degrees. So he literally had, like, his leg hair and arm hair singed off from, like, the tar on the shingles and stuff like that. And into the winter as well. And he didn't complain one day. He literally went to work Monday to Saturday, 7 in the morning to 7 at night. And then he went to church um, a Sunday morning and Sunday night. And it would just be, like, a continuous rotation in terms of him doing that. Um, and that's obviously hard for anyone, you know, people came over to make some money in their twenties and would quit that job a week or two while, while he did it for 20 years. Uh, wow. my dad had a, uh, a dry cleaning, uh, service and a shoe repair shop. My mom did a uh, house cleaning and had a bunch of houses and kind of started her own uh, business that way. And my mom helped out and my aunt helped out also currently My aunt and my mom were kind of like nursing aides or uh, at-home nursing facilities. And, I mean, everybody worked. Like I said, everybody kind of hit the ground running. Uh, Like the first week or two, uh, we had a sponsor, a distant family member, which could basically let us stay with them for like a week or two until we actually found an apartment. And then literally everybody was working. So... It's one of those things where I think a lot of people in the U.S. complain about not finding a job or like this job doesn't fit but when you're coming out of a situation of necessity you do what needs to be done to, to make whatever you're trying to do happen so I mean it, it was we bought a home well my dad bought a home um, and you know we grew up in terms of you know having a yard, having our own home, but like I said, he was never home, he was doing his own thing, so it was just like my mom and my brother and I, my grandparents and my aunt lived in the, the town over, so they were fairly close, probably a 10-15 minute drive from us, so I mean, childhood in that sense was kind of, I guess, what you see in a way in the movies on the, on the front end, like you have a house, you have a yard, you have a neighborhood, kids running around playing in the neighborhood, but obviously, as we all know, people have a lot of stuff in terms of behind closed doors, and yep. just because someone smiles, it doesn't mean that they're not going through something or
0: struggling with something, or something totally different is going on behind closed doors. That's that's uh, that's so true, man. And uh, even in churches, even even in our inner close circles, you never know what's going on in somebody's life, and uh, and and how you can make a difference. And and uh, now you you later interned with the Secret Service. How did how did that be? I mean, I see that you came from a long line of, of basically entrepreneurs. They came over here, like you said, hit the ground running and with shoe repair shops, with all of these different things going on, uh, cleaning houses, construction, all, all of these different trades and tools that they came over and, and put to work. Where do, do you think that led to your internal drive to to just keep pushing forward? Where did the passion for Secret Service or was it? Was it an accident that you kind of fell into wanting to pursue that where did where did that how did that play out? Uh,
1: honestly it was, uh, it was criminal justice was my major in, in college so I have a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. I don't know if I took it honestly because it was an easy major or I, I was interested <laughs> in terms of like the psychology behind so like I wanted to do something if you see shows like FBI profilers that profile serial killers. Are in people's mind why they commit certain crimes in order to kind of like uh, map out a behavior or be able to catch them or find them stuff like that yeah. and I, I thought the secret service was interesting it was one of those usually university or colleges have like relationships within certain departments in terms of internships or possibly like a job later on. So that was one of the things that my school was connected in terms of internships at the Secret Service. It actually took me six months to do the background check and investigation to get the top secret federal clearance because I knew where it technically the movements of the president, the vice president, dignitaries, and all kinds of other stuff. And my internship was on the counterfeit currency squad. So Ah. a lot of people don't know the Secret Service is responsible for protective duties, which is what people see, but they're also twofold responsible in terms of doing investigation for different
0: counterfeit currency crimes in terms of kind of the Federal Reserve as well. You know, um, and I don't want to go off on a preaching tangent here just yet, but talking about the counterfeit currency, you know, um, I've often been told that uh, the best way to study counterfeit currency is to study the real thing. Is that have you? Was that the basis of your of your training? Kind of studying real bills over and over, study study the real thing. In order to identify the, uh, in order to identify the faults.
1: Well, yeah, counterfeiters, counterfeiters don't necessarily know. There's like, like probably a hundred different distinct things that are put into each bill that no one really sees, but mm-hmm. it's like a defining factor. So, like the the commons, common things you see. Uh, sometimes, if you look at a bill, you see metal fibers, uh, blue and red. Yeah. You see the water note that has to match. Like if you have a black light there's a strip in between each. Uh, denomination and it turns a different color so there's there's things like that but even if you look deeply into uh, pictures like let's say there's a, a lantern or a lamppost some maybe a line isn't connected in the actual lamp but people connected in the counterfeit but they don't know about it so each each real, like you said um bill has like a whole book in terms of like going through a sequence and seeing like when it cancels out but there have been A lot of good counterfeits out there obviously there's been some that I've gotten that are completely bad like people print on a inkjet printer maybe they're drug addicts and they they print like five dollar bills or ten dollar bills but a lot of the times you know stacks of you know hundreds and my job as an intern would be to kind of categorize and classify them and really look at them to begin with obviously somebody may look at it also but really look at it to begin with if, you know, it's actually a case or not because sometimes there, there was like secretaries that say at like car dealerships that got, got a stack of fresh $100 bills and because they were so like fresh and crisp, they may have thought that they were like fake, like kind of like monopoly money because they were so new. So I would get like a stack maybe five ten thousand dollars $10,000 because it, it, basically a business sends a form. Every business gets a form and you basically fall into a field office. The field office I was at was the Newark field office in New Jersey, which was actually in Morristown, New Jersey. Uh-huh. And all the, all the businesses and companies that fall under it, would if they have a case that it looks like counterfeit currency, they would attach the bill or bills to this form and send it over to the office. And then I would obviously get it and classify and categorize
0: it into the system and do kind of initial a primary review. You know, that's so cool to me. Uh, I've even heard that used in an analogy while preaching where they talked about, you know, if you want to study counterfeit uh, counterfeit God, or if you want to uh, uh, counterfeit, you, you know, gospel, the fake news, you know, uh, study the real thing, study Jesus, study God, and and really, you, you know, the Word of God and, and, and all of that, and, and that could better help you uh, uh in, in your journey of figuring out you, you know what's what's right or wrong, so to speak. so I really I really really love that. How did you get from that into um, into digital marketing like where where did that transition come from? Yeah,
1: so initially I thought I wanted to go the criminal justice route but interning with the secret service, seeing other things and then as a result of the 2008 recession really applying for jobs, and none being open because state local or federal agencies froze hiring i saw at the secret service that basically you have to move around from post to post in your career at one point have to do kind of the washington dc protective duty so in terms of a family that may have not been the most stable thing and if let's say the field director of your office has like a grudge for you or doesn't like you they'll send you to like the anchorage alaska office or like fargo where there's one other person and you really have to stay there for a few years and kind of rot your career away. So I didn't want somebody else to be in control really, but as the recession happened, I graduated, I was applying to a lot of jobs. For months and months i kind of got down and depressed couldn't find anything mm-hmm. really the only thing that kept my mind clear and, and kind of positive was you know getting exercise going to the gym working out and i met someone at the gym that i met before and one day they were like come out to my car i want to give you something which obviously could have went several directions in terms of uh, the conversation but i said why not uh, i did that and they opened up their trunk and handed me a packet about search engine optimization, and they said basically read this packet, it was about 50 pages, go online for another month or two, and you can do it for my business, which is a funny story because I started doing that, but in three months, basically,
0: that person's cat got cancer, and they spent $20,000 on a cat. Whoa! So basically what, what they were supposed to compensate me out of
1: that, they basically said, sorry, we don't have the funds.
0: Oh, and, my and
1: goodness. Yeah, put your resume out there and, you know, maybe you'll get, you know, a job out there. And I got picked up. I put my resume out there by a company called LexisNexis. I was there for about three and a half four years it's basically in the legal vertical so uh, small medium and large-sized law firms around the nation doing digital marketing eventually i had a elite portfolio where all the clients have spent a hundred thousand dollars or more with the company so i was managing about uh, seven figures under under me in terms of search engine optimization and social media and then i kind of moved and worked at a bunch of other agencies and director roles, worked with more bigger clients like Purdue Pharma, CSL Bering, Boeing or Ingelheim in the pharma life sciences space, KPMG and the financial services as well as other, other things. And then in, in 2012, I really saw that I could basically do that for myself and started an agency for myself.
0: So in all of this you you're developing this entrepreneur mindset you are developing this and and I'm sure a lot of it came from your background and and just uh, uh, watching so many of your family work and move and push on and all of that but but also you're you're a follower of Christ and and I want I want you to just let's let's kind of unpack that for just a second and how. Um, how that looks in your entrepreneurial journey, if you will.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, like I said, I was born into, you know, a, you know, born again, or, you know, in that sense, we, I guess it was Pentecostal in that sense, but my grandparents uh, didn't grow up, I guess, with, with Christ, and they were kind of uh, Coptic Orthodox, and then my grandfather and my grandmother accepted Christ, and then my mom and her sister were born, Uh, into that family and accepting God on their own terms. I think it's important just because you're born into, you know, Christianity or a a believing family, you have to kind of obviously make that decision for yourself. So I think I made that. Yeah, I think in junior high school, um, uh, high school, I made that decision for myself. I went to college. You know, that journey, sometimes you fall, sometimes it takes you in different places. But as long as you kind of bring yourself or bring yourself back to the altar and kind of, you know, start focusing and following. I think that's all that, you know, makes the, the, the best, you know, sense in terms of what you can do. And, you know, I've had ups and downs in that journey. I mean, I, I was baptized um, when I was in college. I've, you know, experienced different things, sometimes the wrong influences, wrong wrong crowds, but, you know, tried to do my best in terms of leading uh, and living a Christ-centered life where people see and, and, and
0: see Christ in me and my my actions and experiences. So I think from a business
1: perspective and I think I'm like a heart-led entrepreneur so I give without, you know, asking for anything. I'm there as a resource and really try to um, to really shine a light and be a light in business because a lot of businesses cutthroat, people kind of screwing each other over and try to have a, a biblical foundation, how I look on business and how I treat clients and, you know, how I Manage and, and handle relationships and networking
0: and that kind of thing. You know, you're dropping you're dropping us a whole lot of nuggets here that we can really uh, unpack for days on end. I want to hone in just a little bit. You talked about this heart led entrepreneur. I love that wordage. I love that wordplay. And uh, and you're talking about how. Um, you, you know, businesses can be so cutthroat, let's climb that corporate ladder, let's move to the next rung, crush the little man, uh, get there by any means necessary and how you want to step in as that light and show that, hey guys, we can be successful, uh, without that. Hey guys, we can, you, you know, make some money and still be good people with good souls. Yes, we fall short. Uh, yes, we all Um, uh, fall victim to uh, our flesh sometimes. We all have issues, but here's the thing, repentance and recognizing that ultimately God is in control of our day-to-day lives and allowing Him in our day-to-day decisions and doing the very best we can. And when we don't know what to do, we just try to do the next right thing. Um, I love that mindset and, and and i love that idea and you feel like you're, you're growing up in that christian environment um kind of kind of i guess molded you and shaped you into that as an entrepreneur uh yes to
1: a certain extent but then like you get to a certain time where i mean i've had i have a podcast i've had people that were like kind of seduced by power and money and stuff like that when they got a a little younger I mean a little older like in their 20s when they were still kind of young and then matured or found their way out of it and kind of had a story of redemption so I feel like it was a similar thing I started gaining more and more knowledge and it was one of those things where it was like I guess mid to, to, uh, to late 20s really chasing like promotions and, and money and stuff like that and then I saw like focusing over to a heart-led approach and mindset and actually leaving a, a legacy I saw that you know you don't have to be kind of cutthroat and you know you're the only one that can see can can succeed and those around you have to stay where they're at like there's plenty you know of stuff for everyone regardless of what you're doing and it's more impactful and for me personally like a a better a more fun and uh, a better experience in terms of a journey to really like help others and bring
0: others up because we can all succeed together you know I, i i agree and at some point you have to have even though your childhood and and this plays on both sides of the fence maybe you were raised in church as a listener maybe you were raised in church and your family had you there every week still i cannot get into heaven off my grandmother's faith all right at at some point i have to make that decision to grow in christ and build that relationship myself now maybe you were not born in church maybe maybe you came up in a rough situation a rough home rough neighborhood rough environment um... bad schools all of those things i want to tell you just the same We cannot get into heaven off of our grandmother's faith. At some point, we have to take responsibility and we have to dive into the Word of God because the only way we can stand on the Word of God is to know what the Word of God says. Now, does that mean perfection? No, but through my imperfection, I am perfect because God told Moses, I am, I am. And so I just think those things um, really needed to come out and and come to light at at how your faith has impacted your journey but before um you, before we get too deep and too far i have got to touch on something we <laughs> we just breathed by earlier you are a foster parent of 25 children man tell me about this where did this come from Yeah, so at this point, since June 1st of 2018, we've had 25
1: children in our home, currently five at this time of this recording, so two three-and-a-half-year-olds, a 15-month-old, a a 12-month-old, and a five-month-old, so the journey started in terms of trying to start a family, going through five miscarriages in three years, spending at this point well over $100,000 out of pocket on infertility treatments because insurance only covers so much with that kind of stuff. And uh, when we were going through that, we're still, we actually may do another uh, uh, transfer next month. So hopefully we're praying for that and we can you know, actually conceive and, and the pregnancy goes well and naturally trying, But we thought that would be a, a choice or a way for us to start a family because we're technically designated as foster to adopt. So if a biological parent loses or gets parental rights terminated, and the child is legally now in the system or like the ward of the state, we would be the first ones that the, the the Department of Child Services would contact to, you know, possibly see if it's a good fit for us to, you know, adopt. So we we thought, you know, it was a great way to help kids at minimum, you know, at maximum if the opportunity arose, which, you know, I think offline we spoke about our first placement we were licensed the 31st of may june 1st we had two boys dropped off at a doorstep and it was like just learn on the job you know we never had we, i mean we've had nieces and nephews over for weekends an extended period of time but it's like here here's a child take care of them mind you each child is coming with their own baggage things that they've seen that they've experienced how you can make them better how you can help in the healing process and anything else, have them feel safe, comfortable. A lot of them have food hoarding issues because they were malnourished or neglected in terms of, you know, being fed or medically uh, neglected as well. So, like, all these things are in consideration because each case is different coming from each different situations. Kids need therapy. We have to kind of be a resource and, and try to help them through their time and get them back to as normal of a a mindset in terms of just being a kid and being happy as possible so the first placement we had for a year we thought we're going to adopt them they ended up being reunified with their biological mom she did everything she needed to do to get them back and luckily they're doing well and being well taken care of but you know unfortunately that's not necessarily the case in each each case but it's one of those things where you do something, or <laughs> before you do it, you kind of have self-doubt, or you're scared to do it, because I think humans are creatures of habit, so when you introduce something new, you, you start second-guessing it, and, you know, why do you have to rock the boat? You have a good life, why do you need to, you know, invest your time into taking kids, you know,
0: some some of which situations are kind of crazy, but it's been a blessing so um I have a sister-in-law my sister-in-law and, and brother-in-law they they foster uh, three kids right now and they have three kids of their own and I've seen um, some of the the ups and downs and 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 some of the uh, uh, great side of fostering and the harder sides of fostering. I, I just I gotta ask you this. What is the living situation in your home? Do you are you do you do you do, you do like bunk beds? <laughs> like like I mean I'm just all these things pique my curiosity. What does that look like for you and I mean like physically look like. Yeah, so we have a two thousand square foot home.
1: Uh, we have three bedrooms which actually we were, we had a master bedroom made more sense for the kids so we moved into one of the guest bedrooms my wife and I so right now the guest bedroom its, it's I mean the, the master bedroom actually is, is very spacious not to say that the guests aren't but we have uh, three children uh, in the, uh, the master and two in the guest so there's also kind of licensing issues where you can have up to four children in your home without any kind of waivers and stuff but because some of the children were coming, like in a situation where, like, they were cousins and they wanted to place them together. We would get waivers by the state. The state would provide waivers that we can have more than four, uh, four children. Not to say, like, <clears throat> let's have you know ten children in our home. That it makes sense. It's just it was the best situation for the children themselves. And there's a lot of stereotypes and misconceptions about foster care, like the foster parents are getting paid or like you see stories of them uh foster homes taking advantage of the system and the kids and basically like keeping money from the kids well in new jersey at least children get a stipend we don't get paid there's no salary there's no incentive for foster parents children get a stipend that's supposed to go to clothes uh food Uh, different other activities obviously when in-person activities like sports and uh, trips and different things in terms of like toys that they want so that's supposed to go to that well i i guess i mean if you kept that and not spent it on the child i guess it can be abused yeah but that's i guess some of the misconceptions that people see on tv and uh in the media about you know foster parents and foster care
0: what is the hardest thing that you've had to face through fostering
1: well I think that first experience of having children for a year and then being positioned as we'd be able to adopt that was the storyline that we were presented to begin with so we were going into it with that mindset and then after a year saying goodbye obviously like being sad and, and down for for weeks after that and really, each case is like knowing, knowing that kids that you love are somewhere out there,
0: mm. but maybe
1: or maybe not, you don't know, you can't help them if they don't reach out and the biological parents don't reach out and you don't know if you'll ever see them uh, again or, wow. you know, or interact with them. Like obviously going through five miscarriages is hard and, and traumatizing, but, you know, we know that, you know, those children that, you know, would have been born are in a better place than in heaven. You have with this, you have the constant thing in the back of your mind thinking, are those kids safe? Where are they? Are they being taken care of? So that's like a constant kind of weight on your shoulders as well.
0: You know, um, I could only imagine. I could only imagine that at you start to feel like you're making real progress in their lives and you start to see um, basically God move mountains. And then when they leave and go back into their old environment, or where you know or feel like they should not be, or is not best for them, you have to sort of you have to sort of let go and let the caterpillar, you, you know, hopefully turn to a butterfly. But you really have no idea what's going to happen. You have no clue, and, uh, and and so I could I could only um, imagine what is one of the most fulfilling. Things that you have seen or felt or experienced while fostering.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think my wife and I, in terms of a foster home, we have a really good reputation in our county. So usually they send kids a lot of the time that need a love, and, a lot of love and care that have completely shut off because things they've seen are things that have happened to them. And a lot of the time, they're either getting uh, removed right away uh, from their biological home. Sometimes, obviously, with police officers breaking down doors and taking them. The night of and then being dropped off 11 p.m. at night with just a trash can and, you know, a a trash bag, I'm sorry, with like a dirty teddy bear, a change of clothes and, you know, what they have on. And some situations that they, they haven't been, you know, good fits, I guess, or the other foster homes they were in wasn't necessarily the best fit. And seeing that kind of transformation, like in a month or two, those kids may have not been able to even smile for you know, months at a time, and then you see them smiling and thriving, seeing that kind of metamorphosis and that change and, and the the road towards healing and knowing that you can facilitate that and and be there for the kids, I think is really rewarding. And, you know, it's beneficial for us.
0: Roman, I just, my hat's off to you, buddy. Um, I I just, this whole story is one that, that needs to be told. Um, It's, You say in in your bio, I want to read this and then I've got a final question um, that I want to kind of bring it to a close with. Um, in, In your bio, it says that you became a foster parent by going through five miscarriages with your wife in three years, two of which happened on Christmas Day. With death, loss, hardships, Roman pushes through no matter what. Let me ask you this, Roman. Why?
1: I mean, like to me, obviously, there's something greater, and uh, everything, in my in my opinion, I've heard it say, and I love this. Everything is either a lesson or a blessing. So even the things that you're going through in terms of trials and tribulations, loss, grief, death, things that you think, you know, why, why has God permitted this? It, it, it does happen. Unfortunately, it's part of life, but taking something from it and, and seeing what you can take from it in terms of a learning experience and how you can apply that in your life and the things that have been traumas in your life sometimes really transform and, and lead you to the path that you were kind of destined to be on. Um, so for me, I think if I didn't go through the miscarriages, which obviously... If I had the opportunity and, and, you know, I can change that, I wouldn't have, but that would have never led us to be foster parents and we would have never touched 25 kids at this point and may lead to other things. So just because something is, you know, uh, a negative kind of perspective or something uh, that's very traumatic doesn't mean that it can transform you and, and make you a better person, helps you grow and then helps
0: you develop and have a bigger impact in the world wow great 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 motivation great why great ending to a fantastic story roman prokopchuk let me ask you this roman how can people find out more about you your podcast what you do uh or or just uh more information about you in general
1: yeah so I mean I have a lot of interviews out there. I have a website it's called novazora digital.com which is my company site. I'm pretty much on every social. So if you Google Roman Perko truck feel free to connect, direct message, you know, continue the conversation, if you need any help or encourage, encouragement, let me know and the podcast is called the Digital Savage Experience Podcast. It's probably
0: on uh, 40 different
1: platforms so Spotify, iHeart, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you consume music or podcasts.
0: there you go all right Roman well we have certainly uh, enjoyed this and I want to thank you for coming on
1: I appreciate the opportunity and you know it's, it's been a great experience
0: all right if you'll hold on just for a second as for our listeners I will see you in the next couple of days.